Please grab your Bible if you have it with you. And we're going to be looking today, um, it looks like there's a typo, um, uh, not Hosea 15, but Hosea 5. Uh, So if you turn in your Bible to Hosea chapter 5, uh, and if you were here last week, Jonathan brought us through Hosea chapter 4, and and we heard the, the word of the Lord these words of judgment against the, the leaders, the, the priests, the people of Israel uh, who were turning away from the Lord to idolatry, to sin, to immorality. And God is very concerned with the sin that he sees among his people. And he's not going to, to just let it stand. Um, it's, it reminds me of, of a parent. I mean, for, for any parent here... There are those moments when your child is doing something and you say, do I let him keep going or do I, do I intervene? And, and, and that God, out of love, is intervening in it with his people. And so again, this is Hosea chapter 5. Uh, and I'll begin reading in verse 1. We're going to read the whole chapter. Uh, and your bulletin is printed on two pages, so you can turn the page if you're reading in the, the bulletin. Hear this, O priests. Pay attention, O house of Israel. Give ear, O house of the king. For the judgment is for you. For you have been a snare at Mizpah, and a net spread upon Tabor. And the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. But... I will discipline all of them. I know Ephraim, and Israel is not hidden from me. For now, O Ephraim, you have played the whore. Israel is defiled. Their deeds do not permit them to return to the Lord, for the spirit of whoredom is within them, and they know not the Lord. The pride of Israel testifies to his face. Israel and Ephraim shall stumble in his guilt. Judah also shall stumble with them. With their flocks and herds they shall go to seek the Lord, but they will not find him. He has withdrawn from them. They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord, for they have borne alien children Now the new moon shall devour them with their fields. Blow the horn in Gibeah, the trumpet in Ramah. Sound the alarm at Bethaven. We follow you, O Benjamin. Ephraim shall become a desolation in the day of punishment among the tribes of Israel. I make known what is sure. The princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmarks upon whom upon them I will pour out my wrath like water. Ephraim is oppressed, crushed in judgment because he is determined to go after filth. But I am like a moth to Ephraim and 
like dry rot to the house of Judah. When Ephraim saw his sickness and Judah his wound, then Ephraim went to Assyria and said to the great king, and sent to the great king, but he is not able to cure you or heal your wound. For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we are completely dependent. Without you, we would not exist. Without you, we would not be here. Without you, the the whole universe wouldn't hold together. And Lord, without you, we wouldn't have your word. We wouldn't understand your word. We wouldn't apply your word. Lord, we we pray today that as we, we read this passage, that we wouldn't be like Israel, whose deeds did not permit them to return to the Lord. But we pray for soft hearts and minds again. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, one of the great benefits of moving through books of the Bible, as we do here at Hope, is the way that, that you, you talk about a lot of things, a lot of passages that are, that are hard, that are, are difficult, that, that if, if it was just choosing the passage out of the entire Bible, if we said, today we're going to look at Hosea 5, you would probably say, well, why are we choosing this passage? Because talking about judgment, especially for several chapters, it's, it's hard, it's countercultural. It's not what we, we naturally gravitate to, and, and part of it is just the human heart that doesn't want to, to hear these things. But I think that it's also intensified by our current culture, that people who study modern culture say that, that we live in a moralistic, therapeutic society, uh, meaning that, that we want something that will, will make us feel good about ourselves feel better. And that's often what we want when we go to church, that we, we want to, to just feel better, to have a, a positive, encouraging message, um, and, and to, to go home feeling better than we did before. And, and I, hopefully that does happen <laughs> going to church, that we do feel better because it is glorious to worship God with his people. But sometimes we can actually be unsettled by the word of God. It, it was interesting when I was pasting part of this passage into Microsoft Word when I was preparing the sermon, when it, when it talked about Israel played the whore, uh, it actually was flagged by Microsoft Word, and it says, this language may be offensive to some of your readers. <laughs> uh, and I thought, well, yes, like, but this is the, this is the word of, of God for the people of God. It truly is. It's the message that, that we need to hear, because if we don't understand the the judgment of God, we, we will not understand the love of God because God is a God of judgment and God is a God of love and we have to see both together or we will miss the, the God of the Bible and we'll have a God 
of our own making, a God in our own image. And so today, if you're taking notes, uh, we're going to ask three questions of our passage today. Uh, we are going to, to ask, who will God judge? Why will God judge? And how will God judge? Who, why, and how? And so the, the first question is, who will God judge? What is the, the object of this judgment? And we see this clearly laid out throughout the passage, but, but especially in verse 1, if you look there in your Bible, that, that it, there's this call to the judgment seat for three groups. And so the first group is the religious leaders. And Jonathan talked about that last week. So this is continuing the theme from chapter 4. He says, hear this, O priests. This is the, the theologians. This is the, are the pastors, the, the leaders that people would trust to, to lead them in the scriptures. And the second group that God will judge here is the, is the nation as a whole, but probably focusing especially on the leaders. He says, pay attention, O house of Israel. And then the, the third is that God will judge the, the political, administrative elite. He says, give ear, O house of the king. These are the people in the, in the seat of power guiding the nation. This is where judgment is, is falling, on the covenant people of God and on their leaders. And it's so significant. Sometimes you will read the prophets, and they will call out the surrounding nations. You can think of somebody like Jonah, who was sent actually at the same time as Hosea to proclaim the word of God to Assyria, to Nineveh, to a kingdom that is far away. But here, God is calling out the people of God. This is the church. He's the church of the Old Testament. And it's really what we read in the New Testament from Peter. 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 17, the apostle says this. He says, It is time for judgment to begin at the house of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel. And so what, what Peter is saying is that as much as we would want to think of judgment starting outside with, with those out in the pagan nations, God judges them, then he judges maybe the, the common riffraff, and then eventually gets to the elite leadership of the people of God, that, that he's saying, no, that it's judgment comes in the reverse order of that, that judgment starts with the household of God, that he begins with the the leadership of the covenant people, then it fans out to the, the people of God as a whole. And then eventually the scripture does say that there will be judgment on the whole world, world. but judgment starts with the household of God. And this is really the, the pattern of Jesus in his earthly ministry. In, in his second coming, he will bring judgment on the whole world. But in his ministry... 2,000 years ago, he began to bring judgment on the house of Israel. That, that he was much more concerned with the sins of the priests and the leadership and the people of Israel than he was with, with politics or what was going on in the Roman Empire. Uh, Jesus didn't talk about 
gladiatorial combat in Rome in his public ministry. Uh, that he, he was concerned with what was going on at the temple, cleansing the temple, that his house would be a house of prayer. That was the concern of Jesus, what was going on in, among God's people. And you see the same thing from the Apostle Paul as well. When he's writing his letters, he doesn't wax eloquent about what is going on in Roman politics or the intrigue in the nation or conquests of barbarian nations. Uh, that, that what he was focused on was what is going on in the, in the church? What are the sins that, that you are facing? What are the, the issues? It's not that he wasn't concerned what was going on in the culture, but he, he, that he knew this, this truth that judgment starts with the house of God, that, that when God shows up for judgment, the place that he's going to show up first is to the church, to the, to the people of God. And as you think about this, I think that it should shape the way that, that we think about our culture as well today. That the call in Scripture is for the church to repent, for church leadership to repent. To, to that is where we start, that, that we get our own house in order. That, that why would the world have any reason to listen to the church if the church is not dealing with its own issues? So before we talk about the, the decline of, of marriage in the culture, and we should talk about it, we could talk about the decline of marriage in the church, or before we, we talk about rampant sexual immorality in Hollywood, we could talk about pornography use among professing believers, or before we talk about false teaching in secular campuses, we could talk about false teaching in churches or on TV or on Christian networks coming from pulpits and, and seminaries, that judgment starts with the house of God, that God will call account his people. Who will he judge? It, that it begins with us. But then here's our second question. So we said, who will God judge that it begins with the house of God? But then the second question we'll ask of our text today is, why? Why will God judge? And of course, you could give the answer from God's perspective, that it's his holy, righteous character, that, that he will maintain righteousness and goodness. But you could also think about it from the perspective of the sin of the people turning away from God. And as you look at the, this, this chapter, there's a whole litany of indictments against Israel. And, and let's quickly walk through them. I won't fully unpack all of them, but you can get a sense of it, that these leaders have become a snare at Mizpah and a net spread upon Tabar. And those were places of significance in the history of Israel. And I, I like how one commentary put it, that, that they were places that were famous, and he's saying that they've now become infamous because of the sin of these leaders, that the, the leaders should have been leading the people in the way of God, but instead the leaders became snares like nets to catch birds. In verse 2, that the, the revolters have gone deep into slaughter. Uh, such graphic language, this violence of the people. Verse 3, that they played the whore, that they were idolatrous turning to other gods. Verse 5, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. Verse 7, 
They have dealt faithlessly with the Lord. Verse 10, the princes of Judah have become like those who move the landmark. In other words, that they, they move landmarks, they, they're stealing land from others. And God could have added much more. These are, are general. We could say more about all of these accusations. But the one I want to camp out on today is, is in verse 5, where it said, the pride of Israel testifies to his face. That, that one of the reasons that judgment is going to come on Israel is because of pride. And I know Jonathan is, uh, will appreciate this. If he might have stepped out, actually. Um, oh, there he is. Uh, uh, we, you know, we're both graduates. I can say that now, graduates of Westminster Theological Seminary. And it's interesting when you talk to people in kind of the seminary world that there are stereotypes of each seminary. Um, and, and so you can kind of, when you know somebody went to a certain seminary, you can kind of guess what they're like to a certain point, which can be kind of scary. And sometimes the stereotypes can actually be borne out. And, and when you ask people about Westminster Seminary, that people say, you know, great history of holding true to the word of God, uh, faithfulness, uh, there, there are a lot of great things. But then I've heard people say, yeah, but you know, most of the Westminster students I've met are kind of proud or a little bit arrogant. <laughs> um, which, which is a, and, and I remember hearing that before I went, that even when I was asking people about Westminster Seminary, they, they said, yeah, there can be sort of an arrogant vibe sometimes there. Um, and tragically, that, that's obviously not the complete story. It's a wonderful school. I'm very thankful for, West, for all my Westminster professors watching. It's a wonderful school. <laughs> um, but, but I think that that, that, can, be a, that can be a sin that, that is really for seminaries in general, that, that any time somebody is saying that, that I'm the one studying the scripture, I, I know Greek and Hebrew, I've read these complex theologies, I've gone deep into the word of, of God, I understand church history, that, that knowledge puffs up, that love builds up, and that especially early on, before the seminary students get out into actual ministry and they're humbled, which always happens in ministry, you will be humbled eventually, uh, that, that that pride can take over. But that pride among leaders that, that can take over because of knowledge, it's dangerous, it's fatal. And it's, it's not just that it's Westminster Seminary, but this is something for Bible-believing Christians, for Bible-believing churches, that we can take on this self-righteous attitude that we are the good people, the, the moral people, the right people standing against the, the wrong people, and, that, and that, the, that our neighbors can look at us and say, wow, those are some arrogant people, prideful. And sometimes the accusation of pride can be false uh, because we're in a culture and a time when really any claim to the authority of Scripture or to truth can be perceived as prideful, that a bold proclamation of the gospel and Jesus is the only way people could say, oh, well, that's arrogant. And that's not. That, that actually can be the most humble thing because it's recognizing that we can't save ourselves, that we are not the ones who are uh, the answer. So not to confuse biblical confidence with pride, because they're different. But yet, that is, pride is the most prevalent sin among religious people, I believe. That, that if you were to, to, to look at Christians in churches, 
that, that the sin that we can fall into, the most subtle and one of the most dangerous, is pride. And it breaks my heart to, to know that and to recognize that in that seed even within myself where the gospel should drive us to humility because it's saying that we're so sinful that the Son of God had to lay down his life so that we could be forgiven, that there's no room for pride, but yet we turn the place that should be complete humility into pride. But of course, as we think about what Scripture says of this pride, I mean, obviously what I just read from, that the pride of Israel testified to his face, that this is why judgment is coming. And it says in James 4, 6, that God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And even more intense is Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction. And you could say pride comes before judgment. Why does God judge? Why is God judging his people that, that a big part of it is pride that overflows into idolatry and into, into sin? And I think that that is one that we can see even in ourselves, that judgment begins with the household of God, and it's because of our sin, including our sin of pride. And so we've looked at the, the who, God's people, the why, sin, including pride. But now third and finally, here's the, the, the third question that we'll ask of the text. How does God judge? And I think that, that in this chapter you can see two types of judgment being poured out upon the people. And the first is what you could call a passive judgment. And the second is an active judgment. And look first at that passive judgment in verse 6. It says that with their flocks and herds, they shall go to seek the Lord, but they shall, they will not find him, for he is withdrawn from them. Do you see that language of, of God withdrawing? That they, they go around looking for the bridegroom in the streets, and they, they can't find him, that he's, he's, he's gone away, he's not there anymore. And this is a form of, of judgment when God withdraws his presence from his people. And it's the most terrifying form of judgment in some ways, uh, because it's the one that we don't know <laughs> at the time, that we think that we're getting away with murder. We think that we're living however we want and say, nothing nothing happened to me. Uh, actually, you know, I had a discussion with a friend in, in college. who He was very hostile to Christianity, and, and he says, I don't believe in God because I've cursed God and he hasn't struck me down. If God existed, then I would have been struck down. And you say, okay, that's, that's a pretty, that's a scary thing to say. Uh, because it's thinking that the only type of judgment that God brings is, is the active judgment. That, that it's only when we see the fires coming down out of heaven upon Sodom and Gomorrah or the floods coming around the ark. But if you turn in your Bible with me to the New Testament, uh, to the book of Romans, and this is, this is Romans chapter 1. And, and in this passage, in, in Romans 1, beginning in verse 18, uh, the Apostle Paul is talking about the, the sins of humanity. And the sin that he begins with when, he, when he's 
thinking about sin, it, it's the sin of idolatry. He says that they have exchanged the truth about God for a lie, that they have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. And then you say, well, what is God's response? That there is this, this idolatry among the people. What will God do? And look at verse 24. He says, Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Verse 26, For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions. Verse 28, And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And so you see that repeated three times there, that that the, the, the response to this idolatrous sin of the people of humanity here is not the fires of Sodom and Gomorrah coming down out of heaven, but it says that God gave them up to their sin. That the sin that they were practicing, the immorality, was the judgment. It wasn't what brought the judgment. It was God turning away from them. God withdrawing from them, as we see in Hosea 5, 6. That is the judgment. And as you think about our world today, we can look around at our culture. We, we look at abortion, which I, I do sincerely believe is, is the killing of unborn babies that 62 million unborn babies since Roe v. Wade aborted. And we look at that and say, will that bring the judgment of God? Or, or we look at abandonment of, of categories of, of biblical sexuality, and we say, is that going to bring the judgment of God? But what, the question that we should ask is this. Perhaps these things are the judgment of God. That perhaps that, that, that even preceding these things... There's an abandonment of God as the source of worship and as the source of joy and life. And these things, these things flow out that God gives us up in the lust of our hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of our bodies among ourselves, that the sin is the judgment. And so if you turn back in your Bible to Hosea 5, and, and so we've looked at this passive judgment but we also see this active judgment of God as well that comes upon the people in verse 6. It says, with their flocks and, and herds, they shall, oh, sorry, um, sorry, verse 6 is the passive judgment again, um, that the God says that he will withdraw from them. But in, in verse 14, we see God bringing this, this active judgment. He says, for I will be like a lion to Ephraim, a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off, and no one shall rescue. And so here you see God talking about this judgment from Assyria and Babylon that would come upon the northern and southern kingdoms of Israel. And what he wants them to know is when they go off into captivity is that they're not going into captivity and facing this act of judgment from God because of the power of the surrounding nations. 
But what he's trying to show to them is, in fact, that, that God is the one doing it. He says that he's comparing himself to a lion. He's a lion to the house of Judah. You know, the book of Revelation, Jesus is called the, the lion of the tribe of Judah. But here it is the lion of the tribe of Judah that is carrying Judah off to captivity. And God is saying to them that, that you think that it's, it's these evil nations, but they're just instruments in, in my hands. Uh, they're still responsible for their sin. I'm not the author of evil, but they're, they're instruments that I will use to bring the judgment of God on the people of God. And this is a, a great mystery of how God does these things, but the, the truth of Scripture clearly says from, from start to finish that, that there will be a time of passive judgment where, where God withholds his judgment, that he lets us in, in judgment continue deeper and deeper into patterns of sin and rebellion. And we can pray that that would, would never be the case for hope or never be the case for the Presbyterian Church in America, that, that we would see where we are before it's too late. But then eventually there will come this final moment of judgment for the whole world when Christ returns in glory to judge the living and the dead. And 2 Corinthians 5, verse 10 says that we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one will receive the due penalty for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And so... For scripture, judgment is coming. Active judgment is coming on the world. That the, the, the giving over to sin for a time will end. And we, when we stand before the throne of God's judgment, that we will stand before the God of verse 3 in our text. Verse 3, God says, I know Ephraim. Another word for Israel. I know Ephraim. Israel is not hidden from me. That God has infinite knowledge. He knows everything. Uh, he knows our deepest thoughts and longings and dreams and sins that when we stand before him on the day of judgment, the God who knows, it will all be laid bare before him. And we can ask, what will happen on that day of judgment? Will, will there be hope on the day of judgment? And this is where we can actually zoom back from the book of Hosea. Hosea does end with, with hope, uh, but we're still in this, the judgment. But when we zoom back, we can think about our three questions that we asked of the text today. Who will God judge? Why will God judge? How will God judge? That We're putting that in future tense. But we could actually reword those questions and ask it in, of the Bible storyline as a whole. Put it in past tense. And you could say, who has God judged? And that God judge the Lord Jesus Christ on the cross in our place. And you say, why did God judge? God judged Jesus on the cross because all of our sins, all of our rebellion, all of our pride, all that we have done was laid upon him, the sins of his people. And then how did God judge that that Jesus, as he was on the cross, experienced the passive judgment of God. He said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He experienced the active judgment of God, poured out upon him the full weight of the wrath of God against sin. But then that wasn't the end, that he rose again from the dead. And he did it so that we can have the knowledge of God. 
so that we can know that, that though he, he may withdraw for a time in his presence, uh, that it's, it's the withdrawal of a loving parent, that, that in Christ we know with confidence he will never leave us or forsake us, that our standing does not depend on what we have done, that we can have confidence uh, to turn to God knowing that, that it's not simply judgment that we'll face because Christ has taken the judgment in our place, which is why we look to him alone for salvation. And it's that gospel that we see here in the Lord's Supper, that, that we see the, the judgment of God, Christ's body broken, his blood shed, uh, poured out for us. And then we see that, that giving way to, to hope and, and to, to life, that, that the dire picture uh, that we see in Hosea 5 doesn't have to be our picture in Christ because of what Jesus did for us. 